Our scripture today comes from Genesis chapter 25, verses 29 through 34. Hear God's word to us. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I remember one of my first classes in college, um, and I, I love the way the professor, he was an older, nearly retired pastor, started it. And it, I mean, it still sticks with me to this day. He started by saying, I know some of you are in here. This is one of your first classes, and you're already thinking about what's going to be on the exam. I know some of you are probably in here, and you don't care about the exams, because all you're curious about is who you're going to have coffee with that afternoon. And some of you in here are, you've already got your sights set on what you're going to do when you're done with this place. But I want to ask you a question that I wish somebody would have asked me when I was your age. And he asked, where do you want to be when you're 50? And what would your life look like if you oriented it around that goal? Not when you're 25, not this afternoon, not the exam, but 50. Now, I gotta be honest, I love running marathons, and so there's a part of me, so that's me last year, <clears throat> there's a part of me that hopes that when I turn 50, you know, I'll still be running marathons. Um, imagine that chasing you down at mile 20. Um, no, but in all seriousness, have you ever wondered, thinking of this professor's question that really rocked my world, have you ever wondered what it would be like if a future version of yourself came back in time and spoke to you today, what he or she might say to you. What this future version of yourself that's had to live with all the ramifications, the outcomes, the, the relationships that have been formed or destroyed based upon your decisions today, what he or she would say to you. What would this future version of yourself say to you today? And I want to be very clear, everyone, everyone has a future you. Everyone. Now, this isn't a message that's for like the relatively young, because there's, I mean, when it comes to young, everybody's just relatively young. Some people have had longer time on this earth, some people have longer time left on this earth, but whoever you are, no matter who you are, everyone has this future you. You have someone you're becoming, you have a place that you're cultivating, you have a life that you're leading. And you're all going to have to, every single one of us are going to have to look at our face in the mirror this time tomorrow. And when you have to look back on today, what does future you want you to do? Like with the moments that are before you, the key decisions that are standing before you, the, those catalytic moments of figuring out what the future holds, what does your future you want you to do? Now, if you're anything like me, you're thinking, well, how am I supposed to know? 
Um, I wasn't planning on being at this point in my life, and I wasn't planning for my life to look like this. So how am I supposed to know what my future me is going to want for me? How is that supposed to take shape? And this is where I, I, I find great comfort, and this is where Christians and why Christians cherish Scripture so much. This is why Christians love the Bible so much, because right here on these pages, we're given a window into what could be and what will be. And in the same way, you would hope that if a future version of yourself had the opportunity to come back and speak to you, in the same way you wish that if there was some capability where a future version of yourself, knowing what was coming down the pike based upon the decisions you made, if, if the future version of yourself were able to come back and warn you and guide you and give you directions and more than just saying, invest in Google. Like if it was more than that, like if there was really give you key direction on where your life was going. We as Christians believe that God, out of the abundance of his love, knows what's coming down the pike. And he's warning you and I. He's guiding you and I on what is best for future you, even though it may be painful in the moment. And I want to be very clear. This morning we're going to see in our story that the stakes and the decisions that we make in our lives are really high. And there is a way in which we can cultivate a future that is full of regret. But there's also a better way forward. And we're going to explore that together this morning. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, we're going to begin in verse 27. That's page 20 if you're using one of our community Bibles in the back. We find Isaac and Rachel, a couple we talked about last week. They had struggled to have a child for years. And finally, Rebecca is pregnant with twins. And the twins within her are wrestling, I mean, to such a degree, like this pain that she's undergoing, that she asks the Lord, what on, earth, what on earth is happening within my womb? And he says, this is a sign of what's to come with these two brothers. You have basically two nations inside of you. How big is this womb, right? Like, holy macro. You've got two nations inside of you that are wrestling. It's a sign of what's to come for these children that are within you. And really, these two brothers couldn't have been more different. Esau, the oldest brother by like a minute, he's hairy, he's burly, and from basically the moment he could pick up a stick, he loved to be in the great outdoors. He loved to chase down game and harvest meat, right? He was kind of a type. You could think of him in this way. He was like the, the team captain. He was the jock, the Navy SEAL. Um, and he used this precision and this skill to hunt down game. And his dad, Isaac, loved the meat that he brought back. Loved that his son was this, you know, burly man who could bring back something really tasty to sink his teeth into. Now, Jacob, the younger brother, couldn't have been more different. And he was always in Esau's shadow. He didn't really like to go outside. The text says he loved to stay in the tents and help out mom with cooking and also help out with some of the household chores. And so the text says Rebecca loved him. He and Rebecca spent a lot of time together. There's something really rich about the relationship that's beautiful and good. But if you're looking just from the surface, you don't have to have a psychological degree or you don't have to be a trained psychologist to know that this is a family recipe for dysfunction. You've got parents who are exercising favorites amongst twin boys who are extraordinarily different, which breeds all sorts of insecurity and questions. So that's the backdrop to the scene that we engage this morning. And that's Esau. He comes in from the field. Now, 
Here's the deal with Esau. It's not like he's on this huge expedition. There's no signs in this story in our text that he was doing something truly extraordinary or out of the ordinary that would make him unduly exhausted. But he comes in from the field and he's hungry. He's just hungry. And he smells some soup, some stew. And he's consumed with this soup. And there's Jacob stirring it up right? He's in there cooking up this big old bowl of stew. I love this because Esau, he comes in and he like sees it, he smells it, and he just begins to drool. And there's one Hebrew scholar by the name of Robert Alter who translates verse 30 so brilliant, this Hebrew that's much more archaic. It basically reads, let me gulp down some of this red, red stuff for I am famished. Now, two things that you need to understand about the Hebrew here. One, this verb gulp doesn't show up anywhere else in the Hebrew scriptures. And we only find it in some rabbinic literature, and it's only used for feeding animals. This is a very animalistic way of talking about food. Also, even though it says red stew in many of our English translations, the Hebrew is literally red red. Like, he can't even, like Esau is so consumed with this stew, he can't even find the normal word for stew. He just goes, Red, red. Give me some of that red, red. Like he's just so, he's so consumed with it. And remember, he's just had a normal day in the field. This is just, I'm out doing my business. I come into the tent. There's Jacob cooking. And give me some of that red, red. I mean, he's just all in on it. Which interestingly enough, we find this footnote as to why then Esau is called Edom. And his kids and their kids and their kids' kids are known as Edomites because this Hebrew word Edom sounds like the Hebrew word for red. Isn't it fascinating? The decisions we make today can have generational implications in ways that we can't even fathom. So there's Esau consumed with hunger. And what do we see? Where is Jacob? He seems to have calculated all of this meticulously. You know, Esau is pictured as like this very spontaneous. He just goes with his gut. Whenever he feels something, he runs towards it. But Jacob is much more calculated. And it seems like he knew this was about to go down. Because when you get to chapter 25, verse 31, Jacob, seeing his brother in this vulnerable, hungry position, says, okay, sell me your birthright now. It's like he'd set the trap. And hook, line, and sinker, Esau is, he's just all in on this. Now, what's a birthright? Let's just be clear on this. A birthright is basically something that the oldest son would get. It's the lion's share of the father's goods or the broader family's goods would go to the son. This was an ancient custom called primogeniture, broadly accepted in the ancient Near Eastern world. The reason the oldest son would receive the lion's share of the goods or this double portion over against everybody else is because he also had a lot of responsibilities. If the father passed away or was incapacitated, then this oldest brother would take on the responsibilities of caring for mom or older sisters who weren't married or the broader family responsibilities. And so the wealth that came alongside of that was to equip him to take on some of these broader family responsibilities. And Jacob says, sell me this over some stew. Now, Esau is so consumed with this little soup 
that his response is staggering, right? He says, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? He overplays his urges and underplays his privileges that he already owns. He's so consumed with desire, overwhelmingly taken by the moment that he overplays his pain and he underplays the privileges he has that lie in the future. And so Jacob, calculated as he is, doesn't miss the opportunity. He says in the moment, swear to me. You want this soup? Oh, it's delicious. Mmm. You smell the spices? I know you want it. Swear to me right now. And in a moment, Esau gives up one of the greatest privileges in the ancient Near Eastern world over a bowl of soup. Now, interestingly enough, now, I mean, in one sense, you look at Jacob and you think, man, I admire this guy's shrewdness. But it's going to come back to haunt him later, as we'll find in the weeks coming. But as for Esau, we actually don't hear another word from Esau. There's this eerie silence. And when you look in the text, in the midst of the slowing down around the dialogue, suddenly there's this rapid succession of verbs, four verbs, just rapidly rattled off. He ate, he drank, he got up, and he went away. Period. And here's the punchline. What he ate was lentil soup. Everything in the text, everything in the text reveals that Esau thought that this was some beefy, meaty, like really hearty stew, when in reality it was just basically some bean soup. And he gives it all up in this rapid succession. He's driven by this over-desire in the moment, all of his future promise, all laid bare for some soup. He thought it was something grand and it was so minute, but he just eats it really quickly and then moves on. And as the thoughtful reader would know, if you've been walking with us through the book of Genesis, this sounds very familiar to the very first story where Adam and Eve take, eat, get up, and go away. Another test, another failure. Another loss of blessing as the story unfolds. Humanity continues to do what humanity does. And of course, this is so much bigger than stew, isn't it? When you get to the very final verse we read in Genesis chapter 25, verse 31, thus Esau despised his birthright. One of the greatest privileges in the ancient Near Eastern world, and Esau treats it as though it's worthless. He's consumed with this reckless abandonment, this animalistic desire and appetite at the cost of all of this future promise. He forfeits all of which God longed to do through Esau for momentary fulfillment. When you go to, New Test to the New Testament and you find this follower of Jesus who writes this book called the book of Hebrews, he picks this story back up in Hebrews chapter 12. And he points Christians back to Esau's example. 
Hebrews chapter 12, in the latter half of Hebrews chapter 12, he says, do not be like Esau. Don't be like him. He uses him up as a very, very negative example. Someone who was consumed with passion at the cost of all the future promise that God had for him. Interestingly enough, the author of Hebrews connects it with sexual immorality, which isn't all that strange when you continue to read throughout the story of Esau and how he continued to abuse women even in his marriage, marriages that come later on. But Esau becomes this byword. In the same way when you hear the word Titanic, what comes to mind? You think failure. You think arrogance. You think someone who took off knowing all the challenges that were ahead and nothing could stop him. Well, the same way the word Esau becomes this byword for failure, this byword for animalistic desire, uncontrolled appetites, short-term gain for a long-term loss. And you know why this is so painful? It's not just that he lost wealth. It's not just that he lost money. It's not even that he just lost privilege within family context, which are huge in the moment. But he was, he was despising God's promise. That's one of the, the hearts, you know, it's at the very heart of what's happening here with Esau. He's despising all that God was promising to do, what God had promised to Abraham, what God had promised Isaac. He was going to promise to do through Esau. But Esau was so consumed in the moment, he had no imagination for all that he was sacrificing in the moment. He was just utterly consumed with self-satisfaction, instant gratification, rather than long-term blessing and the joy of what God had in store. He didn't realize what God had planned. If you follow, I want you to think about this. When you follow after the book of Genesis, the way that God references himself, the people coming out of the Exodus, and even when Moses comes to talk to the people who are there in Egypt that are enslaved, God's people that are enslaved, when you follow the storyline of Scripture, how does God describe himself? But as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know what God was willing to do? God was willing to make Esau's name great. God was willing to actually accomplish his, his promises that he made to Abraham, the promises that he made to Isaac. He was willing to accomplish those promises through Esau and his kids, that his kids would be the avenue of redemption and restoration, that his kids could be the avenue in which God could do some of the most amazing work in the world. It could have been, oh, do you know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau? But that's not the story we know, is it? All for a bowl of soup. We know that Esau is passed over and Jacob becomes the possessor of the promises. That we know God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's through Jacob's offspring that we find how God is working through the nation of Israel. It is through Jacob's offspring that we find God's people who possess God's land, who ultimately, check this, ultimately God's son comes through. All of that could have been Esau's. But he was so short-sighted and so consumed with his appetites and how he felt in the moment. And the pain in the moment 
that anything beyond here and now felt way too costly for momentary relief. All for one underwhelming bowl of bean soup. And yet what we see in the book of Hebrews is that every time we sin, every time we choose to disregard God, we're basically choosing soup over all the future joys that God has in store for his people. And you know what's really painful as you read in the book of Hebrews and you see it across the page of Genesis is that Esau wept and he wept and he wept and he longed to have his birthright back. He longed to have his blessing back. He saw his mistakes. He was wrestling as he looked at himself, maybe not in a mirror, maybe in a pool of water, but you know, he's wrestling with all of this and he longed to have it back, but he couldn't. It was gone for good. And here's one of the most sobering realities when it comes to life. This is where the stakes are so high. There are things in life you can lose and never get back. I think too often in the Christian faith, we don't talk about the reality of this. I don't like talking about this. I love leaning into God's grace and his forgiveness and his goodness. But that doesn't mean that's a life without void of consequences for foolish decisions that we often still make. There are things in life you can lose and never get back. And we know this to be true. We see this again and again, right? A careless word of gossip can utterly destroy a friendship. A harsh word to a spouse, a child, a friend can lose all respect that you've worked so hard for. A moment of sexual promiscuity can destroy a marriage. A moment of taking your finances and investing it in a get-quick or get-rich-quick scheme can leave you financially destroyed. We know this. There are things in life you can lose and never get back. And we don't like to talk about that. We don't like to admit how deeply impactful our failures can be. I think more often than not, I think most daytime talk show host that I used to watch quite a bit in high school with my mom. So, you know, over like on a Friday or whatever when I have a day off. As you say, okay, you know what? I'm not ashamed of my failures. They've made me who I am. I would never change my failures. They're part of my story. Yeah, there's a part of that that's true, but there are also failures that are so great they can despoil you and lead you down a path of destruction that is very hard to turn from. Sin is like the current in the ocean. You can begin to swim and paddle a little bit carelessly, but it can take you out so far that it feels impossible to swim back. It is dangerous waters to play around in. There are things in life you can lose and never go back and never get back. I think so often we want to, you know, play life as if it's like a pick-your-own-adventure, you know, you know, I'm going to figure this out and there's all these different paths and I'm going to be okay because you know why? I'll get a second chance later in life or I'll work this out in therapy or my kids will work it out later in therapy or you know what? They'll forgive me. I, I get it, but listen, listen. There are things you will lose and can lose in life that you can never get back. 
And I want to make excuses for me. And frankly, even when I was reading this story in Esau, I want to make excuses for Esau. You heard me making one a little bit up at the top, didn't you? It's like in one sense, I want to read this story and start psychoanalyzing and thinking, well, he had bad parents. So of course, it's natural that Esau would turn out this way. Jacob was a snake. You know what? If he didn't have such of a snake of a brother. You know, Esau was hungry. He was a victim here. But how does the story end? When God is recounting history, God has way much respect for our decisions than we often do for ourselves. And the way that the story ends here in this episode in Genesis 25, verse 34, is thus Esau despised his birthright. The blame lands squarely on Esau, on no one else. This was his decision. Sure, there are factors. There are always factors. We live in a broken and complicated world. But at the end of the day, the decision lands squarely with Esau. That is how all of Scripture treats it. That's how God's perspective engages this particular episode. Not that there aren't systemic injustices. Not that there aren't broken systems. I'm not saying that. But there is a heavy onus on human responsibility when it comes to the paths that we walk. What are you trading for momentary relief? Where are you letting momentary relief rob you of all that God has in store for you in the future? I want to turn to that big question we asked up at the top. What does future you want you to do? If future you were to come back, you know what future you would warn? You know what God is warning here? is that if you don't keep your appetites in check, you'll hate who you become. You'll hate who you become. If you don't keep your appetites in check, you'll hate who you become. I think right now, one of the biggest pushes we have in our society is freedom without limits. Everybody wants freedom to the nth degree, this absolute negative freedom. Basically, the idea that I should be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it, wherever I want to do it. And there's a lot that's beautiful about freedom. We actually see freedom all across the pages of Scripture. Jesus has come to make us free. But if it's only about individual, personal, isolated freedom, then you're going to find yourself alone. It'll destroy you in the end. Here's why. Community always requires sacrifice of freedom. Relationships always require a sacrifice of freedom. If you just do what you want, whenever you want to do it, wherever you want to do it, nobody wants to be in relationship with you. That is not a healthy relationship. That's a surefire way to make sure nobody wants to spend time. Because that's super selfish. And it'll destroy you from the inside out, and it will not make you an appealing friend. Don't let freedom... And freedom in its isolation be your only goal in life because it'll leave you alone and it'll never give you ultimately what you want. You know, it was interesting. <coughs> I watched this um, documentary, Generation Wealth, that's on Amazon right now, which I need to be very clear. Um, it is for very, I mean, it shocked me. I, I wasn't ready for how much uh, intensity is there in that documentary. It is for a very select few people, okay? So don't hear this as like a blanket recommendation for you to go back and watch it. I was watching, I was like, whoa! Um, so it's pretty intense. 
But here's what's so fascinating. Lauren Greenfield, who is a photojournalist, she's been following uh, the lives of these rich and famous for over 20 years. And she basically investigates the pathologies that have created the richest society the world has ever known. And over these 20 years, she's been following these individual lives of people consumed with wealth and those at the top echelon of wealth. And she comes to the very end of this documentary, and it is so painful, y'all. It is so painful watching this story. The people that have everything are the most empty, and they're totally transparent about it. She gets to the end, and she makes this gallery of these photos of some of the most wealthy in the world, those who have everything, and only puts their words that they told her underneath the pictures as they described their lives. And after years of documenting these individuals, she invites them to come and hear themselves speak in the past, to see pictures of their lives in the past and maybe still of their present. And one of those individuals was Tiffany Masters. She was from Kansas City, which was really shocking to me. I was like, hey, what's up, Casey? And as she started talking about her Las Vegas lifestyle, she leaned over amidst all the pictures of her life and she read her own words. And this is what she said. This is what Tiffany Masters said. This is her future you, future her reading her past self. When I was leaving Kansas City, I told my mom, one day you're going to see me walk a red carpet. I have lived on private jets, crystal flowing nights, and I have partied with rock stars, celebrities, and actors. But you know what they say. Be careful what you wish for. And as she was reading her own words, looking over her own life, she began to cry. Tears of regret. Embarrassed by what she said. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're still wrestling on whether or not to believe this, I, I'm so glad you're here. And you need to hear that God doesn't, he didn't just send Jesus to die for our sins in the past. He definitely did. By God's grace, anything, anything that's in your past is covered by the blood of Jesus when you embrace him. But that's not all he came to do. Jesus came to protect us from regret in our future. That's why he calls us to follow him. That's why he invites us to obey him and to trust him. Because he knows what's coming down the pike of our lives. No matter how unique we may feel you and I are. There is something broadly true about humanity. And not only does Jesus know humanity best. He knows you best. And he's inviting you. And longs to protect you from a future full of regret. If we will but follow him and obey him. So what are you trading today? What's that soup for you, you know? I always love the, the scene in Coming to America. Tyler knew I was going to go there. It's like there's these two Jewish guys, and I have Jewish heritage, so it's always like fun for me. But there's like these two Jewish guys, and they're sitting there with the waiter. I don't know if you've ever seen Coming to America, but they're sitting there, and they're like, why don't you taste the soup? And he's like, what's wrong? Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Is it taste the soup? And they say, well, is it too spicy? Is it too blunt? Taste the soup. And he's like, where's the spoon? And they go, aha. You know, like, so, you know, it's this indirect pathway. But here's the deal. What are you trading? Totally unrelated. What are you trading? 
sometimes that was momentary relief. It was building inside of me and I couldn't hold it. Sorry, I apologize. What are you trading for momentary relief today that's costing you a future of what God has in store for you? Because listen, what Jesus is calling us to is way better than we can imagine, but it takes a deep level of trust to take one step at a time rather than trying to carve out our own adventure. And here's what's really good news, I think, when it comes to sitting in the reality that there are things in life that we can lose and never get back. And if our appetites are not kept in check, we're going to hate who we become Here's what's really, this is some amazing news that's made available in the gospel. This is what God wants us to know is that you can decide today who you're going to become tomorrow. Now, don't go crazy with this. You can't be whoever you want to be, all right? I'm not that person, um, nor do we see that across the pages of Scripture. You can't just like, I'm going to decide to be this. And it, no, I mean, there's, there are some boundaries, but here's what's also true. Every single one of us is becoming someone. The decisions you make today open up a limited category, a group of categorical decisions tomorrow. The decisions you make today inform the decisions you can make tomorrow. Who are you choosing to become? You know, for me, I, I always wrestle with wanting to be a better pastor. You know, I want, when I go back to that question of my professor back in college, I want my roles as a pastor, a father, and a husband to be, you know, when I'm 50, 60, and 70, to outshine who I am in my 30s. And that has, I can't just kind of go with my gut. Because often when I get like a phone call or an email, or I have like a difficult situation with someone, like my gut says, well, I'm going to delete that email. I'm not going to respond to that text. I'm going to avoid that voicemail. I'm going to make sure and never talk to that person again. Like that's like where my gut wants to go. Instead, I have to ask the question, what would a good pastor do? Like, you know, like so often I find myself like, don't, 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 Gabe, don't go with your gut here. Let's just step back. What would a good pastor do in this situation? And that answer is usually the answer I need to chase down and actually allow my life to be shaped by. What does that look like for you? What does that look like for you? I mean, is it, do you even have the category that the decisions you make today can really inform who you will be tomorrow? What about you? Maybe it starts off by just filling this out. This is a super practical avenue when you start thinking about the different categories and situations and moments you find in your, find in your own life. Maybe just fill this out. If I continue to blank, I could become or end up blank. What is that for you? If I continue... To blank, I could end up blank. What about you? I mean, seriously, think about what your future you would want to come back and say to you in this moment. If there are things that you can lose and never get back, and if your appetites, if not kept in check, will make you into someone you're going to hate, but you have the opportunity to actually make a choice, who are you going to choose to become? Now, if you're anything like me, you're like, man, okay, Gabe, I get it, but it's a lot harder than that. <laughs> How on earth do we change? Because if we're left to ourselves, if I'm left to myself, I'll choose the red red every time, right? If, that's, if it's just between me and the red red, I don't got any control. I love red red. We've all got our red reds, you know? Everybody does. And thankfully, God doesn't expect us to do it on our own. 
This warning story, what God is communicating to you and I is now not an individual, individual response to kind of pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps to toughen up and just make the hard decision. No. If it was always left up between us and a bowl of soup, we'd choose the soup every time. But thankfully, God sent his son, Jesus, knowing that we would always choose red, red. And Jesus, he went into the wilderness for 40 days without any food. And he was tempted in the absolute worst ways. And he came out victorious, never once taking a bite. And when we give our lives to him, his victory is credited to us. And then he says, follow me. Trust what I have to say. Let me guide your life. And he doesn't just say that carte blanche and just say, do it. He actually gives us his spirit, the same spirit that empowered, us, empowered him in the wilderness. The same spirit that wrote, like resurrected him from the dead is the spirit who lives within us when we lean into him, when we trust in him. And so we too can know victory in our lives and we can turn away the bowl. The momentary relief and find a lifelong opportunity for whatever he has in store for eternity. Do you believe that you don't have to be enslaved to your desires? There are things in life you can lose and never get back. If your appetites are not kept in check, you're going to hate who you become, but you don't have to become that person. Give your life to Jesus. Make that decision today and your future self, I can guarantee it, your future self will thank you for it. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and your warning. This is a heavy sermon and we want to say thank you that all the mistakes, the failures and the sins that we have committed are covered by the blood of Jesus when we embrace him. Now may we trust you going forward to guide us down better paths, trusting that your future that you have in store for us is better than anything we can craft on our own. All by the power of your spirit. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.